Today we're in the second week of our series on marriage and relationships. If you were here with us last week, we spoke about the importance of being best friends in marriage, and we talked about the fact that nobody dreams of having an average marriage. Nobody dreams of having an average marriage. We all want something amazing, but the hard truth is, unless we do something different to what most people are doing, average is exactly where we end up. That's why it's called average. And this week we're going to be talking about conflict. And before we get into this, I'm going to be making some points about things like the importance of owning your mistakes in marriage. And so there's a mistake that I need to own up to because last week I shared a few thoughts I have about dogs. Specifically, I shared my thoughts about my brother-in-law's dogs. I said some, some very hurtful things and uh, something that didn't cross my mind was that Bill and Anna were out faithfully taking care of our uh, young people and middle schoolers. They were teaching a class and they would listen to the message later on that week in earshot of their dog, Alonzo. And um, it completely did not cross my mind that the dog whose reputation I was besmirching was in fact Alonzo's mother. And I got a text message from Bill this week saying, I just need to let you know Alonzo will not be tithing to New Hope anymore. <laughs> after the hurtful things you said about his mother. So I just want to own my sin and say, Alonzo, I'm, I'm very, very sorry. Your mother is beautiful in her own way. And so I just wanted to be an example of Christ-likeness for you as the church. So every marriage has conflict, and every marriage will have more conflict in the future. It's not the absence of conflict that helps build a great marriage, but how conflict is handled in a marriage, how we deal with it, how we deal with each other. And if you're single and you're thinking, you know, I'm not gonna have conflict in my marriage because I'm gonna marry my soulmate, then bless your heart, this message will be on the website in the years to come. And while I may not be the authority on marital conflict, Charlene and I have successfully summited one of the Mount Olympuses of marital trials, you see, for years, our marriage was tormented by a powerful demon. In fact, I can tell you this demon's name. His name is Ikea. Yet, if you come to our house today, you will see much Ikea furniture that has been assembled by the two of us, and yet here we are, happily married. That's right. God has been faithful, and we now have a rock-solid system. Charlene is the brain. She gets the instruction manual. All I do is whatever she tells me to do. And this works for us. This has exercised the demon from our marriage. And I'm pretty sure that any couple who ever does premarital counseling here at New Hope, for the first session, all we're going to do is give you an Ikea bookcase and just laugh as you go. This can't be that hard. <laughs> and we'll just watch and we'll just review the video and deal with all the trauma over the next 32 weeks or so. So where does conflict between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, come from? Where does conflict come from? If, if marriage is a union designed by God, blessed by God, why is there this constant struggle within marriage? Well, like everything negative we experience and see in our world, the answer lies in what's commonly referred to as the fall of man. That moment when sin entered the human race, we rejected God's good and perfect plan in favor of doing things our own way. And I just want to walk us through this for a few minutes. So right after Adam and Eve sinned, God's telling them the consequences of their sin. He's saying, here's what your decision to sin and reject my way has brought upon you. 
And to Eve, the woman, one of the things the Lord says is this. I put on your outline, and I want you to underline these first four words. Your desire shall be. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So remember that verse. Because in the very next chapter, as sin begins to work its way into the human race, we see Adam and Eve's son, Cain, have an issue with his brother, Abel. And there comes a day when they both bring the Lord a sacrifice. For reasons that are a story for another day, the Lord is pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but not with Cain's. Cain is sulking and pouting, and the Lord comes to him and says, hey, repent, change your attitude, and you'll be blessed too. And then the Lord goes on to give Cain a warning. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? That's God saying, repent, and you'll be accepted too. But he goes on and says, and if you do not do well, if you don't choose to do the right thing here, know this, sin lies at the door, and, and then underline, its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So the parallel between God's warning to Cain and God's words to Eve are incredibly close. The words are almost identical in the original Hebrew. And the reason I point this out is because it helps us understand what that word desire means in both contexts. So when God tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for him, he's telling him, Cain, listen, if you don't choose to do what is right here, sin is so close to you, ready to overpower you. It wants to defeat you, subdue you, take control of you, make you a slave to it. And when God talks to Eve, he's saying the exact same thing. When he says, your desire shall be for your husband, he's saying, you're going to have, you as woman are going to have this sinful desire to overpower, subdue, and exploit man, exploit your husband. And when sin is victorious in a man, he will respond in like manner and want to abuse his strength to subdue and rule and overpower his wife. God's saying this is the result of sin. Both of you are going to want to overpower the other by manipulation or any other means that you can. And I say all that to illuminate the truth that that desire lurks in all of us to bring our spouse into a forced submission, be it through physical, emotional, mental, psychological, verbal, or other means. That desire is in each of us, in our fallen flesh, in our sin nature, and we need to know that so that we can recognize it in ourselves. We're so slow to recognize the spiritual realities that collide with our marriages. You know, we see the work of the devil in the person who steals our parking spot, but it rarely crosses our mind that there may be spiritual forces at play in our marriages working against the good that God wants to accomplish. When we're mad or ticked off at our spouse, the only reason we can seem to come up with is their behavior. That's the only explanation, that's the only factor. It doesn't ever cross our minds that there may be other factors at play amplifying the situation, drawing us to the path of bitterness, anger, and resentment. So make a note of this. Conflict in marriage is the inevitable result of two fallen people coming together and committing to be one. Conflict in marriage is the inevitable result of two fallen people coming together and committing to be one. The real source of conflict is that you are a sinner. Your spouse is a sinner. And unless you figured out how to not be trapped in a human body that deals with sin, you're going to have conflict in your marriage. 
Nobody has to teach us how to be selfish. It's a natural state of mind. I'm always on my mind. And studies show that it takes an average of, get this, 11 years for both spouses in a couple to learn to actually consider the other person before themselves. It takes an average of 11 years before you actually think of your spouse before yourself. You might try, but statistically, on average, you're not capable to you've been married 11 years. And this is one of the tragedies of divorce, just as a side note here. The average divorce happens after around seven, seven and a half years of marriage. So what does it mean? It means most couples, on average, never reach the best part of marriage. They never get there. They bail out, and then they start the whole process again. And on average, they've got an even higher chance of being divorced the second time. They never get to the best part of marriage. 11 years. That's supposed to be encouraging, by the way. 11 years. <laughs> 11 years. Here's what you need to know. If you're sticking together, if you're committed, you're on a trajectory to the best part of marriage. That's the encouragement that's hidden under all of that. And one of the biggest things that God accomplishes through marriage is working to rid us of this natural selfishness. I tell people the truth. I say, I had no idea how selfish I was until I got married. And then I tell them, I had no idea how selfish I was till we had our first kid. I had no idea how selfish I was till we had our second kid. And on and on and on it goes, just peeling back these layers of selfishness that lurk in me. And I'm pretty sure God's going to be doing that process till the day I arrive in his presence. Because we usually become less selfish in only one way, kicking and screaming. Hence, there will be conflict in every marriage. So in light of that, in light of understanding where conflict comes from, that we're both sinners and there's going to be a collision of issues because of that. Let me ask a couple of questions. Who or what is it that we're really fighting when we fight with our spouse? Who or what is it that we're actually fighting when we fight with our spouse? And the answer is sin. The answer is sin. We're fighting sin one way or another. It's our sin, it's our spouse's sin, it's our collective sin as a couple. Your spouse is not the enemy. Sin is the enemy of your marriage. Sin is the enemy of your marriage. And what are we fighting for? What's the cause that we're rallying behind? It's far too easy for us to think, oh, we're fighting for ourselves. We're, so we're fighting for what's right. We're the cause. We're the side that we're fighting for. But the problem is that God's word says we've become one with our spouse in the eyes of God. God's word says that's the process he's working out. He's making you and your spouse one. You've become one when you got married. And we can't fight for ourselves because when we fight for ourselves, there's a winner and a loser. And if one of you ends up losing, well, then you both end up losing. And before you can think it, it doesn't work the other way. If one of you wins, you didn't both win. As long as one of you feels like they lost, you both lost. To fight well in marriage, we have to remember that we're fighting for our marriage. What you're fighting for is you as a couple. You're fighting for oneness. Oneness doesn't mean that you lose. It means you're fighting for what's best for your marriage and for your family. So here's a tough question to ask when dealing with conflict in your marriage. Am I fighting for what's best for me or am I fighting for what's best for our marriage? 
A lot of us need to redefine what a win is when we fight with our spouse. If they feel like they're losing, then our marriage isn't really winning. You're fighting for oneness. You're fighting for what's best for your marriage and your family. So make a note of this. In marriage, we fight sin for the goal of oneness. We fight sin for the goal of oneness. When there's a winner and a loser, you know when you reach the end of the argument and things may be settled rationally, but you have that feeling. You're like, this doesn't feel like a win. And that's why. Because you might have won but your marriage didn't win. So we recognize that we're sinners and are therefore gonna have conflict. We recognize that we're really fighting sin in one form or another, and what we're really fighting for is not an individual win, but what's best for our marriage. And where there needs to be conflict, I wanna encourage you to not shy away from it. When there's an issue that needs to be dealt with, deal with it, because here's what I've found to be true. We don't ever really let the things that deeply bother us go. We don't actually ever let them go. Sometimes we lie to ourselves and say we've let them go when we haven't. What we do is we simply substitute resolution. We substitute handling the problem for bitterness and resentment. So you might say, I'm letting it go, but all you're really doing is you're substituting bitterness and resentment for dealing with the issue. So don't lie to yourself. If you can't let something go and you choose not to deal with it, you're simply substituting conflict for bitterness and resentment. And that's not okay. In fact, it's sinful because you're being dishonest with your spouse. You're lying to them, verbally or non-verbally. You're saying this is not an issue when it really is an issue. You're deceiving your spouse. So write this down. If we don't deal with our issues, we will substitute resolution for bitterness and resentment. Instead of resolving the issue, we'll accept bitterness and resentment in its place. But on the flip side, on the flip side, when I look back over my marriage and the conflict we've dealt with over the years, do you know what my number one regret is? That I simply didn't let it go more often. I wish that I just let it go so much more than I have. This is what the Apostle Peter says about how we're to treat our brothers and sisters in the church. So get this. This is not marital advice that Peter's giving. He's just saying this is how you treat your brothers and sisters in the church. He says, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Doesn't say love puts up with a multitude of sins. It says love covers a multitude of sins. And the picture is lovingly covering something up so that it's not an issue. Notice that it even says sins. It calls them sins, not quirks, not differences, sins. Something where the person was wrong, but it's not a situation that really needs to be dealt with. I think in marriage, these are those moments when your spouse is talking with a tone and you choose to say, you know what, I'm sure they're just tired. Or I'm sure they just dealt with a frustrating situation because that's not how they normally are. It's choosing to believe, hey, I, kn I know they love me. I'm sure that just came out a little bit clumsy. That's not how they meant it to sound. Or I'm sure they just forgot to put that thing away because we all forget things now and then. That's covering up those little sins with love and grace and choosing to just let it go. You watch couples that have been happily married for a long time. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but 
they can still snip at each other, just like a newly married couple do. They can still have a tone. They can still be short. You know what the difference is with couples who've been married a long time and are happy? They just let more stuff go. They just don't have the energy anymore. But that's what you see. You notice that those, those moments that cause conflict to explode, they're still there. They just don't let it explode anymore. They just cover it up and keep going. There's a place for that, and that is a, a godly, godly thing to do in a marriage, is just to let stuff go, if you can let it go, and realize, man, this is not worth two hours of arguing. It's just not worth it. The gospel is all about grace. You see, Jesus doesn't demand perfection from us. Jesus really asks us only one question. He asks us, do you love me? That's his question. Do you love me? And if the answer is yes, then we are covered by his grace. And that's our example in marriage. Last week we talked about loyalty and trust and about how they're the foundation of a good marriage. If you know that your spouse loves you, then show that by believing the best about them. Show that by believing the best about them. Here's a deep truth. I mean, this, this is worth the price of admission right here. Okay. Here's a deep truth. In marriage, we judge ourselves by our intentions, but we judge our spouses by their actions. So when it comes to us, our explanation, our thought is always, hey, listen, I know that might not have sounded right, but I was coming from a good place, and that's all that should matter. I, I was coming from a good place. I didn't mean to do that, and my intention should be how you judge it. But when it comes to our spouse, we're like, well, I don't really care about that because here's what you did. Here's what you said. We're completely hypocritical in how we want to be judged and how we judge our spouses, and there's no grace in that. Trust your spouse's intentions. If you can let it go, then just let it go. Just let it go. Make a note of this. My spouse deserves grace from me more than any other person. More than any other person. My spouse deserves grace from me. Many of you will be familiar with the famous book on marriage. It really is a masterpiece that's titled Love and Respect. And the reason it's a masterpiece is because it's based on what the Word of God teaches in Ephesians, which is that a woman's primary need is to feel loved, while a man's primary need is to feel respected. And the most important part of that statement is how the man and the woman feel. So if you're a husband, it really doesn't matter whether or not you think you're doing a good job loving your wife. It doesn't matter. You're not the judge. What matters is does your wife feel loved? Because if the answer is no, we're failing. We're failing at that task. And if you're a wife, it really doesn't matter if you think you're doing a good job respecting your husband. The only thing that matters is does your husband feel respected? He's the one who gets to judge that. The more a wife feels loved, the more a husband feels respected, the easier it is for them to trust each other's intentions and to let the little stuff go. To let the little stuff go. So if you're really looking to get down to the nitty gritty of your marital issues, ask each other these questions. Husbands, ask your wife if she feels loved. Husbands, Ask your wife if she feels loved. And then wives, ask your husband if he feels respected. And if they don't, then ask why. Ask why. Ask what it would take to change the way they feel. I know that's a scary question. I know it's a scary question. 
But listen, if you're committed in your marriage, if you are all in, if you're all in, here's the good news. You have the room in your marriage to work through that stuff. You see, when you're not all in, when you're not committed, you don't deal with that stuff because you're thinking this could explode and we could end up breaking up. But when you're committed to a marriage, when you say, I'm all in, that gives you the room to work through this stuff because you can work through it without worrying that they're about to leave if things get difficult. So I encourage you to do that exercise with your spouse if you really want to get down to how you're both doing because you may be having a million different arguments, but you're not really arguing about what you're arguing about. What you're really arguing about is this. Does she feel loved? Does he feel respected? This gets right down to the root cause of almost all tension in marriage. All right, so with that framework in place, understanding what we're fighting, what we're fighting for, whether we should let it go or talk it out, understanding all that, let's talk about how to fight well, how to honor God in the way that we deal with conflict in our marriage when the difficult discussion needs to happen or when it just happens. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is this, what's really upsetting me? What's really upsetting me? Are you really arguing about what you're arguing about? Or are you arguing about something that you bottled up, never dealt with, and instead chose to stir up bitterness and resentment, and you've realized it needs to explode, and you were just looking for the first opportunity to do that? Is there a real issue behind the issue? Don't deceive your spouse. Even if you've bottled something up from long ago and you're like, well, I can't mention that now because that was three months ago, so I'll just pour all my anger into him not putting a new roll of toilet paper on. Even if that's what's happened, yes, you should have dealt with it then, but still be honest now about what the issue is. Don't let your partner, your spouse think that you are this upset about something really small. Tell them what's really going on. The next thing we need to do, write this down, is we need to listen. We need to listen. And I know we've all heard this, but seriously, we are so terrible at this. We're terrible at this. Most of the time, when we're in an argument or a fight with our spouse and they're talking, all we're doing is waiting for them to finish so that we can share the brilliant answer that is burning a hole in our brain. And we're just trying to figure out how we can create the, the facial illusion that we're listening. When all we're really thinking is, stop, I'm about to destroy you with this comeback. So not interrupting is not the same as listening. Not interrupting is not the same as listening. We shouldn't interrupt, obviously. But listening means giving your full attention to what the other person is saying. It means focusing completely on trying to understand them and what they're saying. Yes, even at the expense of coming up with a great answer while they're speaking. Do you know that scientists tell us that from a brain chemistry perspective, your brain reacts the same way when you feel loved as it does when you feel listened to? The exact same thing happens in your brain. You feel loved when you feel listened to. So side note, when you see an ugly guy with a smoking hot wife and he doesn't have money, he's a good listener. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Some of you single men cannot afford to not make a note of that, okay? I'm just going to tell you. So most of us know that the best way to listen is to repeat back to the person what their main point was to make sure we understood it correctly. 
And I know this is so tedious and so brutal in an argument. But you know why it's so tedious and brutal to me? Because for me to do that, I have to give up devoting my full brain power to coming up with a really good comeback. That's why I don't want to do it. It's not the time or the effort. It's just like, yeah, but then I have to give my full attention to what you're saying. Be reasonable. But that is reasonable. Because maybe, maybe, the point isn't to have a wicked good answer. Maybe the point is oneness. Maybe the point is the marriage winning rather than me winning. We need to listen well. James 1.19 says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. That's good advice. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Next point on how to fight well. Recognize that your spouse will probably not communicate like you. Your spouse will probably not communicate like you. And I don't mean contrary to what you may think, that they will communicate better or worse. What I mean is they will communicate differently, which you will probably assume means worse, but it's not. I'll give you an example. One spouse is an extrovert and is very passionate, so when they argue, that spouse is loud and tears flow, but their spouse is an introvert. So when they get upset, they become quiet and slow to speak, and they start shutting down. They become very thoughtful and actually become less emotional than normal. What can happen in that situation is the more expressive spouse thinks the less expressive spouse clearly doesn't care as much as they do. Because I'm crying, I'm shouting, I'm passionate, and you're sitting there like a robot. And all they're basing that judgment on is the fact that their spouse doesn't process or respond to conflict the same way they do. Some spouses need more time to think before giving an answer. Some spouses might need five minutes to formulate an answer. Some spouses process out loud while others process internally. Conflict makes some people explode, it makes others shut down. Some spouses need to share everything in order to feel understood. Others just want to share the bottom line, bullet points. We need to learn how our spouse communicates. We need to become an expert in how they communicate. And then we need to give them grace for not being like us because hopefully they're going to give us grace for not being like them. Be patient with them. Learn how your spouse communicates. However they communicate is not wrong, it's just different. Next point, be careful with the past. Be careful with the past. I didn't want to make a blanket statement like never mention the past because there is sometimes a valid reason for wanting to discuss the past. If one spouse's behavior has never changed despite several promises that it would, the other spouse has a valid reason to bring that up and ask why this time is going to be different. They have a right to ask for concrete action steps. However, here's what's not okay. Bringing up past mistakes that have already been discussed and resolved. And it's not okay to bring up past mistakes that you gave the impression you were letting go, you were forgiving, and stir them up all over again. Because when we do that, it gives our spouse the impression that we didn't really forgive them, we just saved it up for a rainy day, and today is that rainy day. Be very careful about making your spouse feel like you've never forgotten or truly moved on from their mistakes. 
There are exceptional times when the past needs to be discussed, but as a general rule, God's word says love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And I promise that however good you think you are, you do not want your spouse to bring up your record of wrongs because we all have one. We all have one. Next point, as we mentioned last week, ask the helper, the Holy Spirit, for help. I just wanted to mention this again. Pray before the discussion. Pray when the discussion becomes an argument. Pray after the argument. Engaging with the Holy Spirit during conflict will keep you spiritually focused. you got to understand, when you get into a situation of conflict and tension, your flesh, your sin nature, is having gasoline poured on it, and it just wants to explode. When you begin to pray even during that moment, Holy Spirit, help me. Help me to listen. Help me to figure out what to say here. When you begin to do that, you are keeping yourself spiritually focused You're asking for the strength of God to supernaturally help you in this situation. And he will. He will. Don't underestimate the power of that. Next, here's an obvious one. Don't lose control of your emotions. Don't lose control of your emotions. Psalm 4.4 says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Anybody here ever lost control of themselves emotionally and the result was just impulsive acts of righteousness? Anybody had that happen, you know? You know, I was there, and I, the, what happened is I just got so worked up, and then, you know, I just started doing these ridiculously kind things for people because I got out of control. None of us have that story. Impulsive grace and compassion because I lost control. Losing control of our emotions leads us to sin probably like a 100 times out of a 100. So there's two ways to avoid that. As we just said, one, ask the Holy Spirit for help in the moment. Just tell him, like, I'm losing it. I'm losing it. I need you to help me. The other option is just take a break. Take a break. It's much better to take a break than to keep going out of control. So let me be practical here when it comes to taking a break. Here's what's not taking a break. Not saying anything, leaving the room, slamming the door behind you. That's not taking a break. That's storming out. If you need to take a break, I recommend you tell your spouse how long you're planning on taking a break for. If you say, I need five minutes, I need 10 minutes, I'm going to visit the family in Alberta, I'll see you in a few days. Whatever it is, you need to share that, you need to share that. But then it's also fair to expect the person who requested the break to be the person who reinitiates the discussion. So if you ask for the break, then it's on you to come back at that time you said you would and say, okay, I'm ready to keep going or I need five more minutes. Those are just two really practical points on how to take a break. Next, when you realize you were in sin, repent. Repent. Own your sin and apologize. Own your sin and apologize. Do your best to apologize well. We, we do this with our kids even. When they repent or apologize to someone, we say, you gotta tell them what you're apologizing for. This isn't good enough, sorry. For what? The stuff. You have to own it, and it's not about being legalistic, but when you tell a person what you're apologizing for, what you're repenting for, it communicates to them you understand what offended them or what upset them. It's important. It's not about being legalistic or treating anyone like a baby. It's about letting your spouse know, I understand what I did wrong, and I'm owning it. And if you're on the receiving end of an apology, be gracious. 
be gracious, because in that moment, they're probably not going to be able to come up with the tone that you would like them to have. They may not have the verbiage you'd like them to have. Charlene and I have had plenty of situations where we have to tell each other, I need you to listen to the words I'm saying and completely ignore the way that I'm saying them because this is just the best I can do right now. I'm really sorry this happened. So give your spouse grace because emotions rarely go from 100 to zero. They take some time to cool down. And so sometimes you realize you were wrong, you got to apologize, but you can't come up with the really soft, tender, notebook-style vocal interaction in the moment. So you have to tell your spouse, please listen to the words I'm saying, not how I'm saying them, and know that I mean every word while I don't mean the way that I'm saying it to you right now. A few things that are never okay if you want to fight well. I just want to encourage you to make these ground rules in the way that you argue, in the way that you fight. And here's what I was thinking about. I was thinking, how would I fight in marriage if Jesus was in the room? Knowing that Jesus expects us to have conflict. He doesn't say never have conflict. He knows we're going to have conflict. So here's some things that I don't think any of us would do if Jesus was just watching us fight. There'd be no name calling. There'd be no insults. No cussing. And there's a place and a time for cussing. I had a friend who said the two places are under the hood of a car and in the bedroom. And that's probably a good philosophy. The reason I say no cussing is because it feeds your anger. It feeds your anger. It is what comes out of us when we begin to lose control. So if we allow ourselves to begin to lose control, to loosen our tongue, you may think cussing is not a big deal, but you're much more likely to say something genuinely hurtful if you allow yourself to go down that road. There's no place for sarcasm. There's no place for eye-rolling, laughing at your spouse or mocking them in any way like that. No loud sighing or huffing or puffing. There's no room for that. And interrupting. These are, these are all pretty obvious things that we wouldn't do with most other people. So let's agree that our spouse doesn't deserve to receive any of these things from us when we argue with them. These are good ground rules to say, hey, when we fight, these things are off limits. And then finally, when the issue is resolved, come together physically. When the issue is resolved, come together physically. You know, sex is meant to be a binding agent in your marriage by the design of God. And when things have felt fractured emotionally, spiritually, physical intimacy goes a long way toward restoring that oneness. It may feel awkward, but uh, you'll get over it really quick. If you're a guy, you'd probably like five seconds or so. So... There's, there's a reason why makeup sex is legendary. Psychologists tell us that codependent couples have the strongest marital bonds. Codependent couples, even though being codependent is wildly unhealthy. And I thought about codependent couples I've known. They're, they're fighting all the time, and I thought, why is there such a strong bond in codependent marriages? And then I realized it's because they're having makeup sex like three times a day because they're so dysfunctional. But man, they got a strong bond going in their marriage. So when you've resolved an issue conversationally, but it still feels like you're not really back together, you're not really one, I just want to ask the question, could it be because physical intimacy hasn't been restored yet? It hasn't been restored yet. Just something to keep in mind. In the book of James, he writes this, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. 
If God really is the head of our marriages and he promises to give grace to the humble, I want to suggest that many of us who long to see more grace in our marriages are missing the point that God is waiting for us to choose humility first so that he can release that greater grace in our marriages. If you imagine the grace of God being like a faucet that pours on our marriages, then pride would be what closes that faucet and humility would be what opens it. If we're serious about oneness and what's best for our marriage, then we need to humbly recognize that when it comes to conflict, we only ever have half the information because we only have our perspective. And we're only half of the one unit that is a married couple. And even though in selfish pride we want to believe that that's all the information that's needed, it's simply not true. We're one with our spouse, and if we're fighting for that oneness in our marriage, then we need the perspective that they have. We need to know how they feel. We need to know what they're thinking. And here's the hard part. We can only get it by listening to them. We can only get it by listening to them. And that requires humility. But if you'll humble yourself in your marriage, you will find the Lord pouring out his grace upon you as a couple. Grace upon grace upon grace. This stuff is not easy. It's extremely difficult. But our example is Jesus going humbly and willingly to the cross, dying to himself for our benefit. That's our example. That's our role model. Because every objection we have in doing that in our marriages is destroyed by the example of Jesus. When we say, well, I don't have to be humble because I didn't do anything wrong. I think Jesus understands. And Jesus would say, I never did anything wrong. I'm the only man who can actually make that claim. But I humbled myself and I laid down my life for you. He's the example. He's the example for marriage, for men and for women, for husbands and for wives. We're to lay down our lives for our spouse. We are to die to ourselves for them. And here's the good news. If you've been doing a terrible job of that, you're going to have another chance real soon, probably today, probably on the way home. It's not easy, but it is good, and it's right and it's holy, and it's the path that produces grace and favor and blessing and life in a marriage. Really take a hold of this idea. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And I don't know about you, but I need more grace in my life, and I need more grace in my marriage. And what the Lord is saying, he's saying, okay, I hear you, that you want more grace. Here's your part. Humble yourself. Humble yourself. That's your part. You provide the humility, I'll provide the grace. That's the deal that God is offering all of us in marriage. And my prayer is that every single one of us would take that deal and say, yeah, I want that. I want my marriage to be marked by grace, not two people keeping a record of wrongs or two people who substitute conflict for bitterness and resentment, just explode at each other over the smallest thing. I want grace on my marriage. God says, okay, you provide the humility, I'll provide the grace. 
Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I just want us to respond in some way. And so just to, if you're here and if you would just say, man, I, I recognize in myself this sinful desire to win on my own. This desire to win at the expense of my marriage. And I don't want to do that. I'd rather choose the path of humility. And so today I, I just want to ask Jesus and the Holy Spirit to help me do that. Help me be the best spouse I can be. Just while no one's looking around, if that's you, would you just put your hand up? And I hope that's all of us who are married. Thank you for doing that. And let, me, let me pray for us. Father, I pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, the almighty God of heaven and earth. Lord, that we would be humbled by your example on the cross where you gave yourself and laid down your life for us, the church, your bride. Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves, that you would pour grace upon grace upon grace on our marriages. Father, I pray if there's anything that we need to own up to and apologize to our spouse for, Lord, would we do it? Would we follow through in honesty and in humility? Because we recognize that we need your grace on our marriage, Lord. We need your grace. And we need you, Jesus. Lord, we know that conflict is inevitable, but we want to honor you even in how we deal with our conflict. Lord, help us to exhibit the kind of love that covers over a multitude of sins. Father, help us to let the little things go, knowing that you have forgiven us so much. And then, Lord, I pray that you would bless every marriage represented in this room. I pray that you'd bless every marriage that is coming in the future. I pray you would bless every single person, Lord, who you are working behind the scenes right now to unite with a spouse. It's going to be a blessing to them. We want your blessing more than anything else in our marriage, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for not leaving us on our own. Thank you for helping us through your Holy Spirit. Lead us, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. 
Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.